Layovers, your weekly dose of aviation innovation. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome aboard from the flight deck. This is Paul Pavelevichu. Hello, everybody. This is Alex Hunter. We'll be your pilots for this show about the news, the startups, and the technologies defining the modern air travel experience. Our flight time today? You know what? It's going to be about 45 minutes. But this was our favorite 45 minutes in the history of recording this podcast, and we hope you're going to feel the same way. We have an actual Boeing 747 pilot with us today. You'll see, Mark is so inspiring. We could have talked for hours, listened to us, and then buy his wonderful book. As we reach our cruising altitude, I'm going to turn off the fast seatbelt sign for you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, sit back, relax, and let's turn on those noise-canceling headphones. Flight 40 to Heathrow. Yes, we're back at Heathrow. You know, guys, when I start this show, uh, you always hear my voice pretending to be in uh, flight deck, which, of course, I'm not. But today, we have an actual pilot, someone who's actually in the flight deck. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, very happy to join you. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time, Mark. This is very, very exciting. Can you tell us how to pronounce your last name? I'm really sorry to no, understand. No, no. I've heard that question a few times, as I'm sure you have as well. Um, I say Van Honecker, which is sort of the Americanized version of a Flemish name. I was so uh, way off. <laughs> <laughs> you, you've written a book. We're going to talk, obviously, about that book. We're recording today. It's Monday, May 9th, 2016. Your book was released quite some time ago, but the paperback releases was released, uh, the US version, last week. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It came out on May 3rd in the US, and it'll be out uh, at the beginning of July in the UK. And other countries soon? Translations as well? Yeah, there was a... Um, earlier this year, it came out in Japan uh, in Germany, um, and last week it came out in Italy. I haven't actually seen the Italian edition yet, but... Uh, I look forward to holding it. To be honest, it's one of my favorite books. Obviously, we're two here, Alex and myself. We are airline geeks, so obviously we would say that. But at the same time, what I found really endearing about that book is that it's not only for pilots, it's not only for hardcore AV geeks. Like we say nowadays, it could be for everyone. It's really the joy of flying. And it's something as a kid, although I ended up not being a pilot, I can totally feel this excitement of, of one day I will fly a 747 because you do fly 747s. That, that's right. Yeah, I fly the plane um, that I dreamed about flying when I was a kid. I fly the 747, the 400 now. I, that wasn't the one I dreamed about when I was a kid because it, it wasn't flying yet, but I'm flying the plane that changed the world. I and mean, I'm really happy to be up there. Alex, you're jealous. I'm right? insanely jealous. Yeah, I think uh, we should mention that the book is called Skyfaring. I, I don't think that's come up yet. It is not beyond the blue horizon off the perch as my favorite aviation and travel book. It's beautiful. What what was the genesis of the book before we kind of talk about your story? Why did you go, yes, it, it's time for me to write a book? I'd always enjoyed writing. It was something I was doing as a kid, just diaries. And um, I had a lot of pen pals when I was growing up. And in some ways, writing and flying kind of went together even then. When I was sending letters to my pen pals in Australia, in Japan, I was really conscious of the fact that those aerograms, you know, they had an airplane on the front. They were feather light because a big heavy 747 was going to fly them across the ocean. And there was something about the scale of long haul travel that you know was to me tied with having correspondence around the world. And then as I got older, I spent a few summers in high school abroad on homestay programs where you go and live with a family for a few months. And I did two or three 
those in high school. And it's kind of funny to admit now that what most excited me about those trips was the plane trip that would take me there rather than necessarily what I would, what I would experience when I landed. <laughs> uh, and I was uh, keeping diaries then too. And um, I found that the time in the window seat was a really good place to make notes about what I was looking forward to or what I'd seen. Um, and then I became a pilot after two other sort of brief careers. And But I kept writing. And maybe five or six years ago, I started writing for publications. And I didn't really write that much about flying. I kind of tried to avoid writing about flying, actually, just to see if I could do it without relying on the really amazing material that you know anyone who loves flying would be interested in. But a few years ago, um, I wrote an article about globes and what had happened to office globes. You know, if you watch Mad Men or something, you see a globe in the office and a globe in the living room at home. So I wrote an article about what happened to those. And, and an agent in London saw that. And she said, do you want to write a book about globes? And I said, well, I, I'm kind of done with globes. <laughs> you know, I did a lot of research <laughs> for the article. And, you know, I'd often thought about writing a book about flying. And she said, oh, you're a pilot. And yeah, so that, that was where the idea for the book came from. And then I talked with her a little bit more about it. And then slowly it came in, into shape over the last few years. Fantastic. So you're based in London because you fly for BA, but you're originally from the US. Am I correct? Yeah, well, it's actually a little more complicated than that. I actually live in... <laughs> I actually live in New York now. Oh, wow. Um, oh, oh, wow. So I'm still based at Heathrow, but of course we can live wherever we like. There are pilots who live in South Africa and Australia. Quite a few live in France or Spain. I did live in London for, I guess, 12 years, but a couple of years ago, I uh, moved out to New York. I'm very jealous now. Yeah. Twice, 747 <laughs> and New York. Well, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's a great city. I mean, in many ways, uh, New York and London are growing closer and closer, as I'm sure you know, when you fly between them. Yeah, I just did that, actually. Yes. I mean, not with you, sorry. No, no, it's fine. I mean, you know, one of the things you kind of notice is the sort of general uh, demeanor of the passengers that you fly, especially, uh, of course, the ones on the upper deck, which are the ones that we see most directly during boarding. I mean, if you fly to a place like Cape Town, you know, a lot of people are going on a honeymoon, they're going on a once in a lifetime holiday, and there's a very festive atmosphere on board. And, and of course, the flights from New York to London, a lot of the business travelers are doing it every week. For them, it's like getting on a bus. You know, they've got their routines and they go right to bed. And that and the number of flights between the two cities are really a testimony to how close they've grown. Do people recognize you as a, the author? No, that hasn't really happened in terms of passengers. I mean, we, you know, we do say hello to passengers, but it doesn't happen that we have too much time to look at name badges, that sort of thing. Once I was on the shuttle, the little shuttle train that goes out to the satellites at Terminal 5, Somebody saw my name badge, and he was on the phone, I guess, with his wife. And he said, honey, honey, I'll call you back. And he, he, <laughs> uh, he put the phone down, and he took out of his bag uh, a copy of my book. I signed it for him. And then the next thing he pulled out of a bag was a copy of a book that he'd written about the DC-8. Oh, no uh, way. Wow. Yeah. So uh, he gave me a copy of his book, which he signed for me. And we went off to our separate corners of the world on our separate airplanes. But it, it was a nice moment. So if we talk about you, one of the things that was striking in your book is that you are some kind of, I'm sorry to use that term, late bloomer. You didn't start right off the bat as being a pilot, like you just mentioned a few minutes ago. You had two other small careers before becoming a pilot. Can you tell us just a little bit more about that? Sure, yeah. So I you know, I was obsessed with airplanes growing up. I, I'd always loved them um, in much the same that you both perhaps did. But I didn't know any pilots. I didn't, you know, we didn't have any pilots in our neighborhood. I, mean, I grew up in quite a small town in, in New England, and none of my relatives were pilots. And, you know, my dad was obsessed with airplanes as well, but only as a kind of interest or hobby, not as a job. Nobody ever said, why don't you become a pilot? You know, you might, you might like it. 
and I assumed that I would that I would have another job and I would look for one that allowed me to travel and to fly. So I, I started a, a PhD in history in England. That's the first time I lived in England. Um, I never finished it. I did uh, I did about I did about <laughs> half of it maybe. And then I decided to become a pilot and I wanted to save some money to pay for my training. And I wanted a job that would pay well and that would allow me to travel. And the, the sort of intersection of those two was management consulting. So I, I worked in a consultancy in Boston for three years. You talked about Boston on a recent show. I mean, one of the reasons I, I worked in that company was that their office was on Atlantic Avenue in Boston. So you nice. had this great, <laughs> you had this, <laughs> this amazing view of Logan Airport across the harbor. And I, I don't know what effect that had on my productivity. Probably not, not, a, very, <laughs> uh, not a very good one. Yeah. I and mean, while I was there, I found out about airline sponsorship schemes for training. Um, so I applied to the British Airways one and was admitted, I guess, in March of 2001. And I started that May. And then I flew the Airbus for a few years and, and then I switched the 747. And now when I'm landing on the, uh, uh, towards the Northeast in Boston, I, I can look out across the cockpit window and see my old office there on the harbor. And uh, it's a nice uh, reminder of... How old were you when you started flying? Um, I was... As a pilot. Then. Yeah. When I started my course, I guess I was nearly 28. Wow. And I, I started actually flying when I was nearly 30. Did you have a choice? Or I mean, the 320 is, for us here in, living in Europe, is almost a plane that we seem to be flying all the time when you fly short to medium haul because everybody has 320s, 390s, etc. Did you have a choice? Or was it like almost like a rite of passage that you had to start with that? Um, we, had a, we actually were given a choice, but there were maybe 12 people on my course who finished at the same time. And we were given a choice in order of... So normally everything in an airline happens by seniority, but of course we all joined on the same date because we were on the same course. So then they went by age and I was one of the oldest ones. So we actually had a choice between the 737 at Gatwick or the Airbus at Heathrow. And I chose the Airbus at Heathrow, not out of a particular love for the Airbus, although I did love it. I, I mean, I liked <laughs> it as much. I didn't really, I didn't make too much of an informed choice about the aircraft, but the Heathrow fleet is much larger. So you have, you know, you get to go really all over Europe and even to North Africa and the Middle East now, you know, and, and also there are more trips where you stay overnight based at Heathrow. Where you're going to have a night in Helsinki or a night in Milan or Istanbul rather than going there and coming home. And, you know, and I was just starting out. I wanted to see the world or at least Europe. So Heathrow made more sense for me. And that meant the Airbus. I was thinking about this yesterday when I flew from Olby and, and Sardinia back and um, it took a while to get off the plane for various reasons. So I was chatting to the first officer and asked him how many turns they'd done today. And it was just, it was there and back. And I was wondering when you're doing those short to medium haul and you're doing like a 45 minute turn, are you able to kind of even contextualize where you are, where you're going when you're on the ground for 45 minutes? Or are you sort of still in the zone as it were? It's interesting. Um, you know, when you're doing a whole bunch of those trips, over four or five days, for example, and some days you'll do four flights where you're, you know, wow. you're going, you start out in Dusseldorf, you fly to London, you fly to Glasgow, back to London, and then to Lisbon for the night, and you spend the night in Lisbon. And those airports where you haven't spent the night or you're not about to spend the night, there is a kind of sense in which, you know, you're, you're there in a quite curious and limited way, really. <laughs> but there are places, you know, there are two cities, I think I mentioned in the book, where I've been to them many, many times on an airplane, but never left the airport. Two that stick in my mind are, are Moscow and Tripoli. You know, for me, because I was always so attracted to long haul flying, the fact that you could actually go to 
Africa and back in the day was just, I mean, it blew my mind. <laughs> in those days, we'd fly to Tripoli. I mean, it's a three hours and 45 minute flight, maybe. Um, and we'd land there and spend an hour on the ground and then come back. I'm not going to say Tripoli is a city I know or that I know anything about, really, aside from the airport, but simply to know what it looks like to come to that place from the sky, to, you know, to cross the Mediterranean and land and, you know, to see the, the sort of coastline of Africa in the distance and then descend and land there and to just walk around and be outside. I would always volunteer to do the walk around there just to sort of breathe the, you know, the air of Libya for a few hours. <laughs> just, and then you go back to London and, you know, you go out for dinner with friends and, and they're like, where were you today? And I'm like, oh, I was in Africa. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I was in Africa. I, I wouldn't say that those kind of journeys are in any way akin to what you might have if you went and visited for even an overnight, but they were still very special to me for, for what they were. Now, Alex, you know how I feel like in Frankfurt, because you always tell me I always connect in Frankfurt. <laughs> yeah. So, so, just out of curiosity, what's the longest route that BA or you did with the 320? I think it, it was maybe either Tripoli or Moscow. We also went to Istanbul, but I think that's a little bit shorter. I guess coming back from Moscow in the winter when you had strong headwinds, you know, it could be a good four hours. I believe that since I left the Airbus, they've used it on and off for cities like Cairo and Tel Aviv, which would be longer. And also some routes a little farther east, maybe Tbilisi or Baku, were maybe on the Airbus at, at some point. But those routes were ones that, that came in after I left the Airbus, so I, I didn't fly them. Because I think, Alex, you spotted a 320 that goes to was it, in yeah, the Middle my, East. Was, with not it was BA, my friend. Was, he, he, yes, two days ago, he did London, Bahrain in a 320. Um, oh, wow. wow. Yeah. And of course, of course, now the Airbus is going to New York as well from London City. Yeah. Oh, true. Uh, which I guess would be, uh, that must be one of the longest routes that the 318 or 319, 320, 21 series is flying. So how did you come to change? I mean, you obviously wanted to switch to the 747 because it was your dream airline or when and how that happened? Did you just ask, like, I got enough of that 320, I want to move on? <laughs> um, well, there's um, there's a list that comes out every year and you put in a bid for, for what you want to do and you're bidding for an aircraft and for a seat. So in each aircraft, there's a first officer and then a captain. And this sort of classic career track was you start as a short haul first officer and then you move to a long haul first officer and then you come back to short haul as a captain and then you sort of crown your career with being a, a long haul captain. And so that's the track I guess I'm on. Although there, there are mm -hmm. many exceptions to that. Many people never want to go to long haul. They're very happy staying on short haul for their whole career. I mean, there's a lot of good reasons for that. And other people get on long haul and they want to stay there for the rest of their career. I suppose I'm in that situation where now I could probably become a short haul captain or I could wait a few more years and do it on long haul. Even after my first year on the Airbus, I was bidding for first officer 747. And of course, it didn't happen just because bidding for it is at that stage is kind of aspirational is the kind way to, <laughs> uh, to describe it. But eventually, you know, my number came up. So in 2007, I saw my roster and it had a long block of time off for the training course. And then at the end of it, trip to Hong Kong, which was three times as long as any flight I'd ever piloted before. That's so awesome. Was the bidding for the 747 in particular like very competitive compared to other aircrafts? Yeah, I mean, you can tell how competitive it is based on what's the seniority of the most junior person on it or the most junior person who gets it each year is a kind of a clue to how popular it is. And at the time, the 747 was the most popular. I mean, I think we had 57 hulls at the time. And wow. so you, you could really go anywhere you wanted in the world. You can go to Sydney, you can go to Tokyo. And now, of course... I don't actually know what the most popular one is now. It's probably the 777 for the same reason, because as the 747, some of them are being refurbished, others are being retired. You know, your world shrinks. There's just fewer cities you can go to on it. 
And if you're interested in seeing the world, then you want to be on the biggest fleet, which is now the 777. At the time, the 777 was probably a little less popular than the 747. And now I guess that's probably reversed. And of course, now in the picture is the 380 and the 787 and the 350 soon enough. So it's uh, the picture is getting more complicated for those of us trying to figure out which, uh, <laughs> which aircraft to fly. It's, it's interesting to hear you say that you know one of the big factors in your choices is which plane is going to take me further and furthest afield, which is really interesting as opposed to I'm particularly interested in flying this airplane. I know that was a big factor, but it's nice to think about it in terms of the destinations and experiences that you can have and, yeah, and not just yeah. the metal. And of course, that's easy to say as a you know someone who went on the 747 a few years ago, because you didn't have to make that choice. You could have both. Right. You could have the amazing, iconic airplane and the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I thought at the time, I mean, even then when I bid, I thought about the 777 as a possibility, but I knew the 777s would be around for longer than the 74s, and I could still have that option later. How long have you been flying the 747 now? Uh, nine years now. Is there a time limit or you could go on? forever. Well, I, I could go on as long as BA, you know, slime them. And, you know, the um, I don't actually know when they're planned for retirement. I think 18 of them are being refurbished with brand new cabins inside, which is the kind of investment which would suggest they're not going anywhere quickly. I think at some point I would like to bid for a different aircraft and and maybe this time for the metal or, or for the carbon fiber. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I think you know, the machines are, are in some ways as interesting as the places they take you to. And the 787 as being a really, you know, I guess it's two generations on from the 747-400. It would just be interesting to see what they've done. As a passenger, I just flew it for the first time uh, a few days ago. And yeah, it's a breathtaking airplane, honestly. It's to the point that I would like to look it up and say, can I actually fly it? A friend of mine uh, flies a lot from Charles de Gaulle to Narita, or Haneda, sorry. He used to always fly with Air France, thus the 380, and he now switched to ANA just because he can fly the 787. So that tells you something. It's an attractive Yeah, I, I've been on it a few times as a passenger, and there's some technical differences which sound small, but they, they make you feel a lot better. I mean, the cabin altitude is much lower on it, so that it's pressurized to a higher level. There's also more humidity on it. I don't remember the exact numbers, but the humidity is more natural. It's closer to what you'd find on Earth than on a, a typical airliner. And when I've flown it, I guess I flew it from Newark to London the first time as a passenger, I kind of got off the plane and I thought, wow, I don't feel like I had a night at home. I feel like I only slept for five hours, but I don't feel like I slept five hours on an airplane. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. 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 Uh, you know, you just stop rubbing this in because I have yet to experience this airplane and I'm, you know, <laughs> Paul's, Paul's enjoying torturing me with it. But um, all three of us are obviously huge fans of the 747 and there's something so reassuring and comforting about being on a 747, at least for me, and I think there's, you're talking to Paul and a few other people that experienced this as well. I mean, they're not the newest planes in the sky in the 400s. Why do you think that is? What is it about that airplane that's just, is it the heritage? Is it the provenance? I mean, do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. I mean, it is an icon. And um, I, don't, I don't know why that is. I mean, it's kind of become a, a shorthand for a worldview. I mean, it, it was the first sort of wide body airliner that, and it opened up travel. It opened up the world to the sort of the global middle class in a way that, that really changed how we perceive the planet. And, and so it is just this shorthand, you know, like it comes up in songs, you know, Joni Mitchell sings about it and she doesn't say 
the Boeing 747. She doesn't say the airplane called the 747. She just says the numbers. And everyone knows both the plane and the idea that she wants to get across. And you see that in all sorts of contexts. And I think a lot of it is also how it looks. I think it's just a beautiful plane. You know, we talk a lot about which planes are good looking. It's something we talk about in the cockpit. You know, if you describe the 747 to somebody and you said, well, we're going to have this wide, long plane, we're going to put a big bump in the front, <laughs> it, it wouldn't sound good. But it looks good. And I often wonder if that's because it sort of mimics the shape of a bird in some ways. I mean, if you think of a swan or, you know, any sort of great bird, you know, there's that bump for the head. And I wonder if there's a suggestion of the natural form there that sort of appeals to us almost um, subconsciously, if, if not even genetically. And, you know, the, the lead designer of the 747, this guy named Joseph Sutter, who wrote a book about it, which I, I highly recommend, he talks in the book about being obsessed with birds as a kid and watching them. And, you know, if the birds he saw in, in the Pacific Northwest when he was seven years old have somehow made it into uh, what you see when you look out of the window at Heathrow, then that's a thought that's as lovely as the airplane, I think. Yeah, uh, I, I really enjoy the passage in the book where you talk about the construction workers on the taxiway at San Francisco. Francisco kind of downing tools for a second as a 747 yeah, taxi. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is not a new airplane. They would have seen hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. But something about it is just so evocative that it just gave them a moment to sort of reflect on how impressive it was. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually flew to, um, to San Diego for the first time at the beginning of April. And that's a, a route that the 747 has recently picked up from the 777. And San Diego is a very busy airport, but I'm not sure there's any other wide body planes there. Uh, maybe there are, but certainly there weren't any of the, when I was there. And again, you just hear you know people say things on the radio when you're taxiing in. Um, and it's 2016. It's the plane is essentially uh, at least the basic shape is 50 years old. And I'm not going to ask you what you pilots say about the 380 designing the cockpit. <laughs> So I just flew with Thai Airways from Bangkok to Hong Kong with a 747-400. I was very lucky for the first time in my life. I was in the nose, oh, right. yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. down there. And that was, I was giddy. I think I took like 200 <laughs> pictures with my camera. The crew was looking at me, who's that guy? You know, and it was, there's something, the excitement that I've not seen anywhere else in any other plane. And I can tell you that it's not only us old timers in a way, we've, we've seen that as kids. Even kids today, when you talk to them, there's something about the 747, which is why Alex and myself are rooting for that plane. And we're happy of every single new order of the 8i. We're like, yes, finally. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. keeps on living for a little bit. Yeah, well, I, um, I've got a good friend who's from Vancouver, and um, she flies from Heathrow to Vancouver all the time. That route recently switched to the A380. She flew there on the A380 for the first time. And, you know, she's been a big fan of the 747 for years and stuff. And she got to Vancouver and she's like, I know you don't want to hear this, Mark, but it was amazing. <laughs> she was telling me, she's like, it's, <laughs> it's so quiet and the bathroom is as big as my bedroom at home. And she was sort of raving about the A380. So I said, It's true that the quietness, I mean, I could feel, which for me, probably as an AV geek, was so much fun. I could feel when the gear was, was put in, I could actually feel all the mechanics just under me happening. Whereas obviously, See, when you are on the A380, everything is so quiet. Are we actually taking off? Oh, yeah, we're off the ground. But still, it's not the same. Maybe I'm just an old timer, an old fart. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I've thought about going to the A380. And in terms of the cities it goes to, at least with British Airways, you know, obviously it's not going to go to that many cities at once. I think we've got Johannesburg, Singapore, Hong Kong, Los Angeles, Vancouver now. But the fact is, those are my like my five favorite cities. <laughs> so it's tempting. You know, it's gone for quality in terms of destinations of maybe not having as many as some other aircraft. Question that we are asked all the time. 
How do you cope with jet lag? And do you? Well, it's int- I mean, it, it's a question, you know, we hear a lot. I mean, there's sort of two ways to answer. I mean, in one sense, we don't actually cope with jet lag because we don't have to. You know, when you go to Hong Kong for business and, you know, you land at, I don't know, 5 or 6 p.m. And, you know, the next morning you've got to go to work. But I don't have to go to work. Yeah. I can sleep for as long as I like. <laughs> uh, so I can, you know, I'll be sort of working back from when we depart two days later or whatever to try to plan my sleep. You know, jet lag matters to business travelers because they've got to go to work work and it matters to tourists because they want to get out and see the the sites. But we have this kind of curious relationship to the cities where our work is done once we get there. There's no requirement for me to try to get onto local time. Having said that, I do try to get onto local time, but some of my colleagues don't. Like They will stay on UK time in Singapore um, or Hong Kong, even if that means having a, a nearly reverse schedule. Do you sleep when you are between flights and not at home, obviously? Do you sleep next to an airport on purpose to watch other planes or do you want some quiet time? <laughs> well, when, I, um, when I'm away for work, our hotels tend to be in, in city centers. It's a big quality of life thing to be able to be in the center of a city where you can get out and do things, to have a range of restaurants and parks and stuff in a metro nearby that you can use. Yeah, I don't tend to necessarily spend that much time at, at airport hotels. But, you know, occasionally I'm in a city where there is a really, really good plane spotting. So in Singapore, there's a beach park that actually I wrote about for the New York Times where you can go and, and have a really, really long bike ride. And you look on, on the left, you know, there's white sand and palm trees and sparkling water. And you look on the right and you know, there's an A380 descending to, to, to <laughs> Changi Airport. And so for me, it's like, it's a great combination of the two. And in Los Angeles as well, uh, there's a bike path along the beach that allows you really good views of the planes taking off. I'm not averse to combining the sight of airplanes with some other pleasures. I mean, more importantly, at LAX, there's In-N-Out Burger. Exactly. Yes. yes I, I mentioned <laughs> that In-N-Out Burger in that New York Times article which is kind of about my favorite places to watch airplanes. And uh, those burgers and the landing planes are for a certain subset of the population, which includes the three of us. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's as good as it gets, probably. When I die and eventually go to heaven, it'll be pretty much that. Yeah, <laughs> I'll see you there. <laughs> the, yeah, the Bayshore Path in San Francisco is great for that as well. Jet lag was a really interesting question. But you've also coined this term as well that beautifully encapsulates a feeling that we've all experienced but never really been able to describe. You call it place lag. Oh, yeah. So yeah, can you lag, yeah. can you kind of explain to us what, what it is and how you came up with the term? Yeah, I mean, that was kind of, I was kind of thinking about the scale of journeys we make, especially on a long-haul airliner, and how long those journeys would have taken. I mean, for most of human history, they wouldn't have been possible at all. And until very recently, they would have taken weeks or months at sea or over land. Now we can travel to pretty much anywhere in the world in 24 hours, if not less. And I was kind of wondering what that does to our sense of place. And I grew up, as I said, in a small town in Western Massachusetts. And, you know, there's not mountains there, but there's big hills, certainly, up to maybe a thousand meters. And I feel like it's part of my brainscape that at the end of every little road, there's going to be a green hill. And that when I'm home, the world looks right to me. And when I'm anywhere else, it looks just slightly wrong in a way that has been sort of burned into my memory by growing up in that place. And so I was trying to think about what it does to us to suddenly, you know, to be in London running in the park one day and then to go to the airport that night and get on a plane and fly off to Tokyo, then to have a nap and suddenly get on the train in Narita to go into the center of Tokyo and to suddenly be among everyone who's having just an utterly ordinary commuter experience going into Tokyo. All these people who you would have never otherwise seen, they're reading their newspapers and playing on their phones and that whole city is 
is going on in a way that it would have been if you'd never been there. And yet the plane, you know, they essentially teleport you. I mean, okay, it's not instantaneous, but historically speaking, they're basically teleporting you across the world. I mean, that's what it would seem like to somebody who went to Japan in the, even in the late 19th century. So because you're talking about teleportation, do you regret, regret is a big term maybe, but would you have flown, would you have tried to fly the, the Concorde? Oh yeah, I would have loved, I would have loved to fly the Concorde. And that was actually one of the reasons I applied to BA was the, the 747 fleet and, and the Concorde. I figured you couldn't really go wrong with, with those two options at some point in your career. And that, of course, highlighted even more the way in which we can travel now just across the ocean at that speed. And so place like, I guess, was the best term I could come up with for that, that sense of disconnect that you feel in your first few days in a city where you kind of notice everything. Like you notice like the font on the street signs and the smells and, and the light and, and the sound of a language and all the stuff you stop noticing once you've been in a place for a couple of weeks. And I wonder, I don't know if there's like a neurological basis for it. I mean, there's certainly a biological basis to jet lag, which makes the analogy kind of fun. I don't know if there's there's lots of nice studies about how people have maps of their personal geography and their brain. You know, there's great studies about the uh, taxi drivers in London, how they have different parts of their brains are, are, <laughs> are shaped differently or have grown differently, um, you know, different neural networks based on the kind of training they've had to go through. And I don't know what it does to your brain when you suddenly land in Bangkok after seeing nothing but New England for, you know, the previous years of your life or whatever. Um, it's certainly a fun idea to play with. And um, what, one thing I like about it in particular is you can't overcome jet lag. You just basically have to wait it out. You can exercise, manage, yeah, you can manage yeah, the yeah. symptoms essentially, but you can't, you basically have to wait it out. And I feel it's very much the same uh, for that sort of eye-opening experience of, of having your geography, your, your surroundings transformed. I mean, in a way it's amazing we can, we can cope with it at all. I mean, you could imagine that jet lag would be debilitating in some, in some more fundamental way. And yet it's not surprising it takes us a day to get over it or a week to get over it. And, and similarly for the, Everything that makes up a place, like the smells, the sounds, the sights, the words, the food, the insects, like the sidewalks, the the kinds of cars, the way people drive, the way people walk, like all of that is changed in an instant. And um, it really, it's a way of being aware of the wonder of travel and, and therefore of the wonder of, of airplanes. I used to, so I used to live in Tokyo and I would commute between Europe and, and Japan. Oh, wow. and the one thing I really loved about jet lag is that you get to experience sometimes, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and experiencing a city in the middle of the night or a city like Tokyo especially is actually mind blowing. There are good perks to having some kind of Yeah, jet lag. yeah. That's, uh, that's, I mean, I've, I've often had that experience in Japan of, of waking up in the city when nobody else is there. And, and of course, some, there yeah. are some, there are some routes, especially um, to India where we arrive in the city in the middle of the night where you land at sort of two or two in the morning or one in the morning. And that's quite an odd kind of combination of jet lag and place lag as well, where you, you land in Delhi and you, and you drive into town and it's one or two in the morning, but it's not that late for you. You're on UK time. So it's, you know, it's nine or something. Um, and then, you know, you go to sleep in the hotel. When you wake up, it's mid-afternoon in Delhi and you walk out and you're, the day is already hot and you realize so much of the day has already passed it's kind of a wonder of um, of living on a round planet. And <laughs> <laughs> there was one article you wrote uh, in May last year in the New York Times that was wonderful, not only wonderful, your writing was wonderful. The way the New York Times actually put it was also wonderful. They had some kind of animation in the background. And the sentence that really uh, that triggered so much memories when we saw Tokyo from so far away, we saw it from the other side of the world through fog and cloud in the skies of many countries. We saw it from London. We saw it from another day. I absolutely... 
you nailed it in that sentence. It's exactly what it feels to be traveling long haul. Of course, we are not in the front, so we don't see what you guys see in the front. But still, it's absolutely perfect. That article is magnificent. So oh, thanks. That. that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to work on it with the um, the people who designed the graphics. And, and the text is actually, I mean, some of it's from the book, but some of it is new. And, you know, the book is sort of nominally about a flight from London to Tokyo. I mean, it starts with the departure from London, but it doesn't really come back to Tokyo until the end. Whereas that article, it was kind of nice to to shape it more directly around that flight. And, and you know, Japan's been a really important place to me. It's, I spent a summer there in, in high school and another one in college. And then when I worked in the business world, I went back there as a business person. So to go back as a pilot was a nice bookend to that. And then, in fact, this year when the book was published there, um, I got a chance to go again. Yeah, nice. it was great. Um, <laughs> and um, so I had three or four days of interviews there. And, um, you know, Japan is one of these countries that uh, historically has been very um, interested in the experience of outsiders in Japan. For me to have written about Japan from the U.S. or from the U.K. and then to be invited there was uh, it was very special for me. It was a really nice, nice experience. Usually, as a pilot, you land at Narita. Have you landed ever at? Hanuman? No, I haven't. Um, ah. I haven't. But I, I've heard it's I've heard it's fun. I'm, you know, you're much closer to the sites of Tokyo. I, I've heard you can even see Mount Fuji uh, on some approaches. I don't know. Is that have you either of you had that experience? Or yeah, and on some departures as well, you are you can be yeah. fortunate enough to see it. That sounds great. I'd love to. Um, uh, and actually, Tokyo. Tokyo is one of the few places where we don't actually stay in the city because the distance from Narita to the center is too yeah. far. But I do believe that the crews who fly to Haneda, they stay in um, in Yokohama or in Tokyo itself. And, and so they're much closer to all the sites in, in Japan. Yeah, so I want to go back to the actual f- the flying bit. Um, planes are engineered to be identical in function and performance. But I suppose, and I may be wrong here, that over the life of a 747, each one might develop its own little personality or quirks. So, so I'm guessing, I'm wondering how often do you get on a plane and sit down and go, oh yeah, I remember this one. I mean, I guess how many, how, how often do you fly the same plane? Those are both really good questions and things I, I wouldn't have known before I started flying. You know, we, we're starting to fly the same 747 more and more now because there's, there's fewer of them. So we come back to the same ones again and again. In terms of how they feel, they don't feel different. They basically feel the same. I would not be able to tell you that one felt different from another. That's a regulatory almost requirement that you know that they're maintained in a way that they all feel the same. So that when you get in, you can fly any one of them with, without them having quirks you wouldn't know about, if you see what I mean. One difference is the weight of the plane. That's a really big difference, both between the flights that you might make and also during a flight. So um, if you fly from Washington to Heathrow on a 747, you know, that plane has about a third as much fuel as it would have coming from Singapore to London. You know, it might weigh 300 tons leaving Washington. Uh, leaving Singapore, it might weigh nearly 400. And so the plane does feel differently in that sense. And of course, the planes lose a huge amount of weight as they fly um, because the fuel is being burned off. When a plane lands from Singapore, it might weigh, you know, having weighed 390 tons at takeoff, it might weigh 250 at landing. And that difference is something you can definitely feel in, in the controls. But of course, every plane, every 747 at 250 tons is going to feel like any other. I've seen on your on the website, skyfaring.com, yeah, is right. it? I've seen that you have a, added a gallery and mostly pictures taken by you or by some of your readers from the windows. Yeah, seats. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Do you take pictures sometimes yourself from the flight deck to see what's in front of you? No, not really. I mean, if I'm, you know, if I'm on a trip that has three or four pilots, if I'm on my break and I see something out the window before I go, I I might lean out one of the side windows and take a picture. Um, on, on flights from London to the West Coast of the U.S., 
just the way the timing works out, you're often having the first changeover of breaks as you come across the east coast of Greenland. <laughs> In fact, it's <laughs> it's almost so reliable that you you know seeing Greenland, you could say, oh, it must be time for my, for my break, <laughs> um, which is something that people really love to take pictures of. So you know, after I get out of my seat, before I go to the bunk, I'm, I might um, get my camera out. In the book, I do invite people to send in their photos from the window seat. Yeah, exactly. I love the photos that people send. It's really interesting to see what catches people's eye. I mean, of course, even though I've traveled a lot as a passenger and a pilot, and some of the pictures in there are, are my own photos from the window seat, even a small number of readers will have been to many more places than I've been to. And so I see photos of things I've never seen before that I've probably never seen in my life that people have taken, you know, both things on the ground as well as sort of atmospheric phenomena or um, sunsets or clouds or photos from aircraft that I'll, I won't fly because they're not flying anymore. It's, it's been a really nice way to engage with um, with readers. And if any listeners have photos, then please send them along. I, the other nice thing that happens is nobody sends just a photo by itself. Like there's always a story, you know, it's like, this is when I emigrated to Buenos Aires in 1990, you know, to Argentina. And uh, I flew to Buenos Aires from Madrid. And as we were landing, I saw the river and uh, it was my, the first time I saw Buenos Aires. And my wife was waiting for me when I landed. And there's like a, a sort of human dimension to the photos, which is nice. It's nice for me to read it. Mark, I'm going to send you about <laughs> 10,000 pictures in the next hour. <laughs> Sounds Paul, good. Is a, Paul is a very good photographer. That's not, yeah, I'd love, to, I'd love to see them. I'd love to. Do, you, uh, do you have a, I know it's a bit of a silly question, but, but do you have a, any kind of lucky charm or something you take with you on the flight deck when you fly? No, I don't have anything. I don't have anything okay. like a charm. I mean, my flight bag does have some things in it which are... Um, sort of have a sort of nostalgic value, I suppose. In my wallet, I guess I have um, a set of subway, you know, metro cards for various cities around the world. And, you know, some of them are for cities the 747 doesn't fly to anymore. <laughs> and the logical thing to do would be to get rid of them. But um, I, I have a sort of nostalgic attachment to them. I do always have carry at all times my Suica card. So the card for the Tokyo yeah, metro system. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes I, I think, is there a PASMO card as well? Is it there to the Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, correct. Whatever one I had was the wrong one for the last time I went. Um, or it had, maybe it had expired because I hadn't used it in a year or something, but, but I've still got it. So. <laughs> one question, because it's a mystery for so many people. You just said you take a break, you go to the bunk bed. Where is the bunk bed on a 747 for you? Um, so it's in the cockpit. In the in the flight deck compartment is a toilet, a, a bathroom, and a, um, a and a bunk bed with a bunk room, a separate room really, that has two bunk beds in it. Um, we don't actually use the second one very much anymore because you would only use on a flight with four pilots and those flights there aren't many of them on the 747 anymore because those are obviously the longest ones singapore was the sort of last four crew trip i think we had on the 747 recently so normally it's just you in there no No win no window um it's a very curious place in some ways i mean it's it's pitch black i mean there's a light obviously you can turn on but when you turn the light off it's pitch black and it's it's kind of designed to be that way because it could be, as you'll know very well, it's it's often whatever time it is outside is not the time that you you know want to think it is in terms of getting some sleep. So the cockpit is filled with sunlight. The bunk door is, seals that off. And so that's by far the darkest place I sleep. I mean, at home, you've got a little bit of light from outside. You've got your phone charger, you know, whatever. I tend to sleep very, very deeply there. Even on a what's nominally a day flight, let's say from London to the West Coast of the U.S. or, or Canada, I would never have a two and a half hour nap at home. Um, and yet, what, you know, when I'm in the bunk, I take my Kindle out and the next thing I hear is the chimes that, that are designed to wake me up. So I was I wondering, you know, as a pilot and as an aviation enthusiast, 
Is there any airport or approach in existence or or long since decommissioned that BA fly to or, or not that you've always wanted to shoot? And I'm thinking of things like Kaitak. Yeah. Kaitak, <laughs> of course. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I actually went to Kaitak as a passenger, maybe 91 or something. No, no, later, maybe 95, I went there. I kind of was amazed by it. And I, you know, I, I fly with a lot of colleagues who flew that approach regularly. There's that airport in the Caribbean. Is it on Saint Martin? Yeah. The one very close That's to the right, beach yeah. that you almost. Yeah, and there's yeah, and there's yeah. another one there where you basically land on a cliffside, which has been nominally smoothed out for the, for the purposes of landing <laughs> your, you know, no, I think I don't know what's flying there. It's certainly not 747s, but I wouldn't mind seeing it as a passenger or as a pilot. So besides the approach, is there any airports that you cherish in particular, whether it's design, the experience, memories? Um, well, Hong Kong was my first flight on the 747. Um, to the inch of the new airport. You know, my first flight on the Airbus was from London to Glasgow. I remember that really well, of course, but there was something about flying all across Europe, all across Asia to get to Hong Kong, which really was the kind of thing I'd been dreaming about since I was a kid. And I feel like, you know, that's in some ways where the dream really came true for me. You know, Hong Kong will always have that feeling to me. I mean, there are some airports that are just really lovely to fly to. Vancouver is a great experience. And the mountains are amazing. The water, it's like Switzerland on sea, we call it. You know, it, it's basically the Alps surrounded by the ocean. I mean, it's, um, wow. um, so it's a really lovely approach. And the airport is beautiful. They've, um, you know, all those studies that say you should have like water features to keep people relaxed. Everywhere you go, you hear running water, there's fountains, there's aquariums. And so it's a very calm environment. And it's a busy airport. I think it's got room to grow and you definitely sense that it's a quieter environment. Um, it's a really happy place to go. And most of the passengers going on our flights, of course, are, they're going on cruises up to Alaska or they're going skiing in the winter. So everybody's pretty happy to be going to Vancouver, I think. <laughs> I've actually never flown there. I, I'm from Switzerland, so I see the Alps part, but I don't see the sea part of it. So yeah, I yeah. I, I, I don't want to say the skiing is better than Switzerland, but... <laughs> go ahead, <don't> <laughs> um, But it's, uh, it's just an amazing city, an amazing part of the world. Uh, it's a very special place. The one thing that's really very enjoyable for Alex and myself, but also probably for the people that are listening to this episode, is that I'm feeling like I'm listening to almost like a kid in terms of excitement about this old experience of flying, which is very reassuring in a way, because you always have this uh, question, which is, will a pilot be jaded after a while? You know, having done this job for 20 years, maybe at some point it's like you become almost mechanical and there's a sense of wonder has disappeared. And listening to you, it seems that it couldn't ever basically disappear. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely feel you know, I'm not going to say I love going to work every day. I mean, there are clearly days when I would rather be at home, you know, in the backyard. But in terms of jobs, and I've, you know, I've had a few different jobs. I mean, my overall level of satisfaction is really, really high. And when I have had a few weeks off for vacation, when I go back to work, I kind of can't believe I'm allowed to do it. You know, <laughs> like I walk into the cockpit and I'm like, <laughs> I just feel really lucky. That's not something that a lot of my friends say about their jobs. Some say that, but not everyone does that. And I guess the last thing I'd say is, you know, I do get letters from young people who want to become pilots. And also from middle-aged people who want to become pilots and, you know, training programs like the cadetship that I did with BA, which is open to anyone under 55, I think. So yeah, it's, oh, wow. I, I, I don't know how old you guys are, but if you're... I'm 40, uh, so I see Yeah, like go for it. Yeah. Um, I highly <laughs> recommend it. But I also get letters from people who've retired. They tell me the planes they flew and they say, well, I started on the 707 and, and then I flew the L-1011 or, you know, whatever their, their career track was. And they're looking back on their careers with just 
I mean, we should all be so lucky to look back on our working lives as happily as these guys do. And I don't know if I will. I'm just coming up to 42. But so far, I like it more than I did when I started, which is saying something. Skyfaring, the book is available on all the platforms. I've seen it, of course, on Amazon because I have it on the Kindle. I know it's on other platforms. It was released on paperback in the US in May 2016. It will be released in the UK in a paperback as well soon. And uh, you have a few translations. I think you mentioned Japanese, Italian coming up. Is it yeah, German it's out well? in German, yeah. Right. yeah. It's honestly a fantastic book. I mean, uh, I'll put all the links in the show notes, skyfaring.com. By the way, how did you come up with a term, skyfaring? Oh, What's it's, uh, well, I was uh, looking for, you know, one of the chapters in the book is about water, which is kind of yeah. a chapter I didn't really expect to write. You know, I'm talking about the experience of clouds and flying over oceans, but also about the nautical heritage of aviation, just starting with the word aeronautical. You know, flying is so new in some ways that it doesn't really have the kind of heritage that some careers do. I mean, it has some heritage, but it obviously doesn't go back more than a century or so. Um, so the nautical links are something I've really enjoyed exploring in the book. So I was just looking on the thesaurus online for words that had a maritime connotation, and the word seafaring came up, and I thought, what about skyfaring? And I thought it was a word I made up, and then I later found out there was a, a British poet who used it in the 19th century. Uh-huh. Um, but that was before, I mean, I don't think airplanes were around when he wrote that poem. So that's another nice link to the past and to the, the sense of airliners. I mean, well, there's another word, airliners. I mean, that uh, <laughs> they're moving between cities in the blue, just like uh, ships once did. To cap this off, we always have, as a tradition, a destination airport for our podcast. We asked you before the show uh, about your favorite airports. You mentioned Vancouver, which you just uh, talked about a little bit before. And you said, okay, let's do Heathrow because it's my own airport. We didn't realize that you were actually living in New York. <laughs> like in just two words, is it anything you particularly like about Heathrow? Is it just a workplace for you or there's something special about it? Oh, I mean, it's it's one of the great hubs of the world. It feels like home, and it's a place from where you can get pretty much anywhere. And uh, it's an iconic airport. Where I guess it's where I first put my wings on, so it'll always feel special to me. Oh, we're going to top that. That was wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark. That was amazing. Uh, we, I mean, I just can only encourage our listeners to uh, buy the book, download the book. Not only if you're someone who's heavily in aviation or just loves traveling, it, it, it tells a story about a humanity more than it tells a story about air travel. And that's why I feel it's a book that should be read by the most. I hope, Mark, that you will be our pilot. One yeah, of that would days. be great. I'm sure so, uh, it's, probably, it's probably already <laughs> happened once. We didn't know each other. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah. next, next time we'll, uh, we'll listen for my name. In the, uh, Keep an ear out, yeah. yeah. Thank you <laughs> thank so you. much. Thanks. On behalf of Layovers and the entire crew, we would like to thank you for joining us on this podcast today. And we're looking forward to seeing you on board again next week. Flight attendants, please prepare for landing. 